0: This is the EWN Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. My guest today is Annette Stanwyck. Annette is my mentor and friend and has an amazing story of forgiveness and healing. In 2007, Annette wrote her book, Forgiveness, the Mystery and Miracle. Uh, Annette,
2: thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here with you, Ellen. And I feel, you know, feel honored that be able to share with your audience.
1: Well, I don't even know uh, where to start when we have stories such as yours. So um, why don't we start with you telling me a bit of your background Uh, That got you to where uh, you are today?
2: Well, the story begins, Helen, um, when in 1999, when my brother Soren was murdered. To get that message from my youngest brother Rick was just, it just felt like my heart was being ripped right out of my chest. To know that one of my brothers had been murdered is just—it was just beyond belief. Soren was a long-distance trucker. Uh, he was hauling a load of potatoes from Idaho to Virginia, and in the—he was asleep in his sleeper, and people broke into his truck. They had an altercation, and they shot him, killed him. And for a year and a half, we didn't know who had killed my brother, or why? And the unanswered questions were just unbelievable. When you don't have answers to um, why something has happened or who has done it, it's so easy to do your own makeup make stories and try to paint the picture and try to... It's like a puzzle piece. You're trying to fit the pieces together. I'm ordinarily not an angry woman, but, you know, I was angry after my brother's death. He was he was the oldest of my three brothers. I'm the oldest in the family, and I had been like a surrogate mother to my brothers because my mother had a lot of health issues, both mental and physical health issues. And so I had taken a lot of care of my brothers. So having him ripped out of our lives out of our pictures, out of our family, out of our events, was just mind-boggling. Anyway, back to the fact that I was angry, it was because we didn't know. We didn't have any answers as to why. And so one night, one night, Helen, I was in an angry episode. I was in bed. My husband was right there beside me, sound asleep, and I couldn't sleep. I was trying to figure out... Who in the world, or, or I should say, what kind of person could have killed my brother? And I came up with a, I started making a list. They must have been angry, bitter, callous, deceitful, dangerous, evil. And that list went on and on. And I was so methodical that I actually went through the alphabet. And that picture that I was creating in my mind was the picture of a monster. Picture of a monster. And right there in my bed, and I don't know what the faith background is of your listeners, Helen, but right there in my bed I heard a voice. And throughout my life I've come to recognize that voice as the voice of God. And he called me by name and said, Annette your brother's murderer is deeply wounded. Oh, my goodness, that didn't sound like the picture of a monster that I was trying to create, deeply wounded. And then he went on to say, I love your brother's murderer as much as I love you and as much as I love your brother.
1: So, Annette, when you heard that, when you heard that and all of a sudden the picture that you had painted – um, out of anger and despair and loss and grief and all of that. Uh, and then you heard those words.
2: Uh, were they coming to you or were you even angrier? Well, I didn't want to hear those words anymore. They, because, I mean, my brother was murdered. And I literally, I wrestled with those words in my bed. I put a pillow over my head so I wouldn't hear anything anymore. But yet, in answer to your question, because of my faith background i knew that they were true in fact i had been speaking across canada and the u.s to various organizations about god's unconditional love and acceptance and forgiveness so finally finally i said i i just accepted the fact that my brother's murderer was loved now He hadn't said to me, I love what your brother's murderer did, but he said, I love your brother's murder as much as I love you and as much as I love your brother. When I finally accepted that, I fell asleep, and I fell asleep in peace and had a very good night's rest. I want to back up just a minute because after... Not too long after my brother's death I made three choices I made three very very important choices The first one was I wanted to be happy again The second was that I didn't want to be consumed by what had happened and number 3 I wanted to grow So you know it's it's easy to be consumed and I didn't know where those choices would take me. You, you were going to say something. Helen. Well,
1: I was going to ask you. So, um, I, you know, your background is very interesting. One that's in the um, health and wellness world. I think that is important to, to talk about that because uh, the, that's a very powerful. Um, it, it must be a very powerful feeling to find that peace like that. And you have the emotional and the. Uh, intellectual um, chops to kind of come to terms like that. Can you talk to me about, uh, or tell us about your background? Because I don't know very many people that could be so, I don't even know if gracious is the word, because it's easy to get caught into that rabbit hole of anger and grief, isn't it?
2: Oh, it is. Absolutely it is. and And I'm just a normal human being. I'm just a normal or normal, ordinary woman, but I have had, I've had a, a really wonderful background. I have a nursing background. I was a healthcare executive for decades. I've studied human behavior in depth, and uh, my husband was a pastor, and so I was a pastor's wife. I've anyway did those, uh, and, did those
1: things. Did those things
2: help you or or not? It, did, it just didn't matter. You well, know? you know, at first it didn't matter because I even was, at first I was even angry with God. How could he sit back and watch my brother being murdered? I was angry with God. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my husband is, he was gentle and kind with me when he knew how angry I was with God. And he said, honey, he even... Sat back and watched as his own son Jesus was being crucified, and so boy, you know that just made me i sat back and and relaxed um, and really i felt sorry for what i you know my how my anger had had erupted one day in the car but uh you know I also just three months before sorn's death, I had attended a seminar called choices adventures of a lifetime and it was a five-day seminar that was just absolutely phenomenal and it i learned so much about making choices and i think that's why i came up with the three choices that i just shared with you just a few minutes ago because i realized that i could make some choices yeah tell me about the incident in the car well, we were driving along. We were on our way to Idaho for where my brother's funeral would be, and it was it was quiet. and And I was almost in a state of denial because here my brother was a long distance trucker, and every truck that we would pass, I would look up in there just just hoping beyond hope that I'd see Soren the, in the driver's seat. So that was I was in a state of denial that it wasn't real. And every we we'd stop to have a meal. And I'd always want to stop at a truck stop. And I wasn't one to stop at truck stops. And I'd go in and I'd search. I'd search in the restaurant for a trucker that would know my, you know, that could be my brother. Anyway, we were on, we were driving to, down to Idaho. And there was music playing on the radio. And a song came on. That song is, enti- is the words are, God is watching from a distance. And you know that i was suddenly my anger just erupted and i began pounding my fists on the window of the car and pounding them on the dashboard and pounding them on my legs and scream i literally screamed out god how could you sit back and watch from a distance while my brother was being murdered and that's when my husband gently said to me honey god watched while his own son was being nailed to a cross, while Jesus was being nailed to a cross and being murdered.
1: Um, and you would also had mentioned that you were you had a role as a surrogate mother to your three brothers. At what point were you having to look after your two brothers that were still alive? Because I'm certain that they were feeling the same as you.
2: They were. They were. They were... Um, we, there was a geographical distance at this point, um, a geographical distance because they live in the States and, and I live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And so that geographical distance separated us, but we talked on the phone. Uh, when, we, when, I got to, when we got to the place where we were going to be having the funeral, we just huddled and held each other and talked and the three of us actually um, did a tribute to our to our brother at his funeral, and I created that. And then we we went to the platform together as a threesome. And um, wow, Chris and Rick stood on either side of me, holding me. We were holding each other's hands. It was, and our mother was sitting there on the front row looking up at us like, how in the world can you three do this? But we gave each other strength and courage and we made it through.
1: Well, it's a good question because, you know, I mean, it's just you're, and in those moments, you're right in the depths of the grief and the loss. And to have the strength to stand up because um, people
2: who are there are looking for some measure of strength as well, I would imagine. Oh, they were. They were, they were stunned. There were probably 1500 people at my brother's funeral.
1: Oh my gosh.
2: Yeah. And did he have family, his own family? Was he? Yes, he was married. This was his second marriage. Um, he, uh, he had two grown children and even had some grandchildren. So he, yeah, he, he was, uh, he was well known in his community. He was a, uh, he was a leader. He was he was a voracious. Oh, I mean, he was just he was so much fun. He was a big person. When he walked into the room, everyone knew he was there. He mm-hmm. was he was just so much fun and a great you know a great brother, great fun, great family man. Did you have any measure of
1: peace after? So I know that you uh, clearly while you're talking today, but. At what point did you manage to uh, be able to put one foot in front of the other where you weren't in so much pain on a daily basis?
2: You know, it wasn't easy when after the funeral and we we came back to Alberta, and then I started going back to work, I could not get into my computer. I mean, I could get into my computer. I'd forgotten my passwords i I just was oh the where, where my office was was on the fourth floor of a medical professional building and we had there was a rotunda where we could stand at a railing and look down way down to the first floor and there were trees and flowers down there and tables and chairs and people were milling around and going on to their appointments or going into the little the little kiosk to get something to eat and there was there were all these people going around in that place. And I'll never forget one day I stood there at the railing and all these people were moving around and I grabbed hold of that railing and I wanted to scream. I wanted to scream out, stop. Don't you know my brother's been murdered? I wanted, I wanted the world to stop. Mm -hmm. And that's not an uncommon thing because we get into this bubble of grief and pain, and it's all about us and what we're feeling, but the world keeps going on. Exactly. I
1: I actually have written an article called how many lasagnas do you have in your freezer? Because when when a tragedy or a death of any kind happens, you know, it's all it's so concentrated, like you're almost in do mode, you don't, you're not even really grieving yet, because you're in such shock. And, and that's when your friends and your neighbors are there, and they, you know, with their kind hearts need to want to reach out and help. And then two weeks after they're all gone on with their lives because that's what we do. And you're still standing there going, hold on. I'm not
2: even begun yet. Yes. Yes. You know, um, and the, and the thing is here, my brother's death had occurred in Idaho where there's, you know, it's a, my family was a very well-known family in the community, in the surrounding area. But coming back to Canada, nobody here knew my brother. They just knew, you know, that I'd suffered this horrible tragedy in our family. And, and they were kind and sent flowers. And But they didn't know what to do or what to say. Because nope. murder doesn't happen, you know, in in the circles that I run in.
1: <laughs> yeah. So let's fast forward a bit. Because at some point, they did find out who his murderer, I'm not going to call him, I'm not going to say his. uh, At some point, uh, they did find out who Soren's murderer was, didn't they?
2: Yes, it was about a year and a half later, Helen. And... uh, I want to
1: touch, before you tell that part, is a year and a half later, where are you emotionally at this point Annette? I I, I'm assuming that you had had... uh, Did you have any measure of peace at all, or were you just kind of still in this, you know, zombie state.
2: I was for a year for that whole time while we were, while we were waiting and hoping to have some answers, but we had no idea when we would have them. I, my sometimes I was not in a very good state. I'd go into the grocery store late at night, you know, maybe on my way home from work or on my way home from a meeting. I'll never forget one night I walked into the grocery store and at 10 o'clock, And the only other customers in there were men. And as I saw these men, it was like I saw a sign written across their forehead, murderer, murderer, written across their foreheads. Well, of course they didn't have a sign over their foreheads, but I came home and I told that to my husband and I said, honey, I, am I losing my mind? And, and he said, do you think maybe you could benefit by some grief counseling? And he even had the name on the tip of his tongue, someone that I could call. His name was Bob Glasgow. And I knew Bob well because we had worked together in a hospital here in Calgary for a few years, and he was a grief counselor. And I called him, and he took me in right that very day. And you know, Helen, I, that was one of the best choices I could have made because we can't do some of this stuff on our own, even though I was as a nursing background and I knew all about grief and all the, the you know, the various stages and phases of grief. And, but we can't, sometimes we just need another person to help us. And every week I went to meet with Bob and all he'd have to do is ask me a question or two and I would just talk and talk and talk. And at one point, when I said to him, you know, he asked me why I, why I wanted to work with him. And I said, because I thought I was losing my mind. And after a little bit, he said, Annette, you are not losing your mind. You are very normal. And you know, that helped any me to peace? settle. Pardon did, me? That, did that give you any peace when he said? That helped me. It helped me to settle down. That I wasn't becoming mentally ill because my mother had been mentally ill for years, and I was, of course, I was afraid when I was having, you know, doing strange things and couldn't cope as well as I had always coped. Um, So you know, and
1: and your husband is a pastor. Yes, he he essentially is a grief counselor. um, But sometimes it's nice to have uh, someone who who is um, a bit
2: distanced. To be able that's to right but isn't it? That's absolutely right and I really you know it was one of the I'm so grateful to my husband that he, that he saw that in me and that maybe it was beyond him. He had actually taken some chaplaincy courses from Bob Glasgow so he knew the quality of individual that Bob was. But there was another other things that I was doing. I read, I devoured books on grief. I I read every book I could get my hands on and that helped me to understand what it's like to go through the grief and how different people grieve. I was, um, my motorcycle also became a real instrument of healing. When you're riding your own motorcycle, you have long hours, long, long hours of solitude and so I, each day that we would ride, and we rode thousands of kilometers on our motorcycles. Okay,
1: so back up just a second here. You can't yeah.
2: just throw a motorcycle into this
1: story without telling us. Okay. And got into, mo- because that uh, that just really upped your coolness factor big time. But, you know, go back a bit about how you uh, got involved with for, with riding a motorcycle.
2: Well, well, my husband started first, and he, he, uh, he loved it so much, and he wanted to share motorcycling with me, and he wanted me to ride, and I couldn't ride behind him. I'd been in a very terrible automobile accident several years before, and to sit on behind him for hours, one of my legs would go numb, and I, so I said, I just don't want to do that, and he said, well, I wonder if you could ride your own. And I was really resistant because when when I'd been in this terrible automobile accident, I'd had 13 broken bones, massive internal injuries, eight surgeries, four and a half months in hospital. And I didn't want to get injured again. And because of my nursing background and being vice president of a large hospital in Toronto for several years and other hospitals as well, I had seen motorcycle Victims of motorcycle accidents come in, you know, in terrible, terrible, terrible condition. So I knew the realities. But my husband kept after me. He wanted me to learn to ride. So he said, why don't you try sitting on a bike? So we'd go to motorcycle shops, and I'd sit on them. And finally, I found that I could. You know, it didn't didn't bother my hip, my leg. So he said, why don't you take a course? And he was after me. Finally, I said, okay, and I remember sort of gritting my teeth, and I said, okay, I will take a course, but you sign me up, you pay the fee, and if after the course I don't like it, get off my back. He did it, and I took the course, and do you know, I fell in love with it i yeah. fell in love with it
1: so okay because because right, i just i i know there's another story about your motorcycle which just is that involves in your speaking career but we'll come back to that so so let's go back to
2: you were riding your motorcycle and were you and i was doing a lot of healing on my motorcycle oh, you're healing okay, okay yeah i was doing a lot of processing because of the long hours of solitude helen I made a choice that each day that we would ride, I would I would choose a, a topic to focus on, focus my writing. And I had a little stack, a little box of cards that had had qualities on it that I wanted to have more of in my life. And so I would choose a card for the day, and then I would focus on that. I whether it was that I wanted more love or more courage or more acceptance or more strength whatever I I would pull one of those cards out and that's what I would focus on I'd pray about that quality that I wanted more of it in my life I'd I'd recite poetry I'd I'd make up poetry that would just go out into the wind but I was a great poet at that time you still Uh, are well (laughs) I I haven't done much poetry
1: well, I have one that you wrote for me, and
2: it's absolutely beautiful, and I look at thank it every you. day, but that's a whole other thing. Thank, Jeez, thank you. Thank today. you. But, but so you know that I do, I can create poetry. And the, the oh, I wish, I wish I could have captured the poetry that I created while I was riding my motorcycle. But, you know, I was processing through those words that I, that I picked out at random and I felt myself opening up from the inside out, that I was becoming more loving, I was becoming more compassionate, I was becoming, and I think I've always had some pretty tender qualities, but I just felt that I was changing from the inside out. So that was that was really helping me. Rather than focusing on poor me and and ooh, I'm so full of grief. I, I made the determination to not be consumed but to do things that would help me grow and change
1: and then they found the murderer didn't they
2: yes do you want to tell us one one day yeah one day we got a call saying that they had identified a family actually that were responsible for my brother's death there were three brothers their mother and a cousin And they had developed a racket. And they uh, had, they wanted my brother, they wanted, they saw my brother pulled, uh, parked along a quiet, dark street one night, and they wanted to steal his truck. And they had stolen other trucks. Uh, This had become a racket for them. And it was across several different state lines. And I mean, oh, when we got that, call. And not only had they killed my brother, but they had killed another trucker and left a third trucker for dead. I mean, how, why was my brother part of this story? And I said to my husband, I've got to get out of my motorcycle today. I I just, I have to somehow make sense of this. I have to process it and getting out in the wind and the, the fresh air always helped me. And so we were riding along, we were riding with a group of of motorcycle friends. We were on our way to a car show, in fact. They had no idea what I'd just learned. And I was, I was, the word that I had chosen to focus on that day was acceptance. Now, acceptance is a very, very important part of the grieving process. And so I was praying for acceptance. God, help me accept this picture that has just opened up. Help me to accept the fact that why? And then I asked the question, why? Why is Sorn part of this picture? And then God spoke to me again. And this time he said, forgive them. They didn't know what they were doing. And I was stunned with that statement. And then I focused on that. They didn't know what they were doing. Well, they didn't know My brother. They didn't know how much he was loved, who he was, what kind of person he was. All they knew was that they wanted his truck and he stood in the way, so they killed him. But then that other part, forgive them. And you know, I cranked open my throttle and I raced past everyone in the group that we were riding with. And I was I was throttling my way through my pain and screaming out, no, 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 don't, ex- don't, don't ask me to forgive. They've killed my brother. And then he said, forgive as I have forgiven you. Oh, my. I'd been forgiven for, of so many things. And then forgive and I will forgive you. So it was forgiveness for the past and forgiveness for the future. Pretty powerful stuff. Right? you know, Oh, it was powerful. And, you know, it, Helen, Helen, Uh, right there on my motorcycle. Again, I wrestled, I wrestled. And then finally, finally, I said, okay, if that's what you want me to do, then you're going to have to make me willing and make it possible.
1: Wow. And that says a lot to be open to it because a lot of people will not be open to that. They don't understand the, the, the entire bit around forgiveness that it really has nothing to do with anyone else other than from your own heart is that correct
2: yeah but you know I wasn't thinking about that at that time I just I thought you know it was almost a challenge okay if that's what you want me to do then you're going to have to make me willing because I wasn't willing at that point point. and you're going to have to make it possible like how do I do this if this is what you want me to do Make me willing, but how is it going to be possible?
1: Yeah, it's a big ask, isn't
2: it? Yeah, it is. It is.
1: So, so you found that part out, and then uh, it went through the
2: courts. Well, no, um, Travis, the one who pulled the trigger in my brother's death, finally confessed. And because he confessed, he did not have to stand trial. So my family and I were invited to go to Virginia, where my brother's death had occurred, to attend the sentencing hearing of of Travis, the one who had pulled the trigger, had shot Soren. And we were also invited to present a victim impact statement. And so I said, boy, I'll be there and I will present a victim impact statement. And there were 10 of us family members and we, we each presented victim impact statements and I was the last to present my victim impact statement, being the oldest in the family and having known Soren the longest, I asked if I could be last and they actually switched the schedule for me. And, um, 10 people pouring out their pain and their anger and their resentment and their bitterness. And uh, it was a, you know, that room was, the courtroom was packed. I don't, it was a very public case, high profile case. And it, the, the courtroom was packed, but I was totally unaware of other people in the courtroom. When it came my turn to go up to the witness stand, I stood up and and, and I, as I stood up, it was just like there was a wall of fire in front of me, a wall of fire. And as I thought back about it later, it, I was, it was a wall of fear because I knew what I was preparing to do and what I was preparing to say. But my family, none of my family members knew what I was going to say. And I didn't know. You know, if I would cave in, maybe at the last, would I cave in and not be able to go ahead with what I knew I needed to do and with what I knew God was asking me to do. But as soon as I took a step, that wall of fire disappeared.
1: And what was it like when uh, you first saw Travis? Because you had mentioned earlier you had built up this uh image of this horrible monster murderer you know that and then you then you saw him what was that like Annette?
2: That's a that's a really powerful question. Really important question, Helen. Uh I'll never forget we were sitting there in the courtroom and those big double doors opened and in walked Travis. He was in an orange jumpsuit His his hands were, he was in handcuffs, and he had shackles on his legs. He was a young man. He was good-looking. And he looked, he was alone, he was afraid, he was accused, and he was ashamed. His head was down, and he did not look like the monster that I had created a picture of. I was stunned, actually, when I saw him for the first time.
1: Did that deflate some of the, the anger when you saw, you, you often hear that with people when they're in the courtroom and they're facing their attackers or, you know, in this situation, um, that they're, it's not what you'd built up in your mind. Did that take away any of the anger or would it just make you more
2: confused? I, you know, I don't. I just remember how stunned I was that he wasn't a monster like I'd expected him to be. So I guess it probably diffused some of it, but I think what really diffused it was there was a psychologist and a social worker that took the witness stand and talked about how Travis and his brothers had been, well, they, they talked about Travis. And of course they were in the same family. That he had been physically and emotionally abused, he had been abandoned, he had been left in poverty and shame, and his father had had taught him and his brothers how to steal big trucks or to steal the the load that was on a you know maybe an empty a trailer that was not hooked onto a onto a, a truck. And when I heard those stories about how those boys were raised, my heart of compassion opened up, and instantly I saw, I heard those words that God had spoken to me in my bed that night when he said, Annette, your brother's murderer is deeply wounded. Those three boys were deeply, deeply wounded. Now that didn't give license to what they'd done. It was no rationale for what they'd done, but you could, I could sense how, how Travis's life had gotten away on him and how, you know, it led to what he had become.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think that's a big struggle that I know I've had with in the past is when I hear these stories. So, you know, if, it's sort of like, okay, well, I was abandoned as a child, I had not a great upbringing, I was definitely damaged human being. But I, I chose not to take a path like that. I just didn't, I don't think I even had it in me, to be honest. But so it almost when when I hear those stories, and we hear them all the time, where they're like, Oh, my gosh, you know, they, they were, you know, abandoned as children, and they were abused as children and all of those things. I think, I almost feel like, is that an excuse? You
2: know what I'm trying to say? Sure. And that's what I said. It, it was not an excuse. It was not, there was no rationale for what they'd done. And they didn't, you know, because of how they'd been raised and their mom, you know, she was a dysfunctional woman too. She was part of their criminal activity. Uh, they hadn't been taught about that there was anything other else to do.
1: Yeah. I, and, that, and that's true. I mean, and that's, and that's, that's the beauty of having compassion for another human being because we don't get to judge. We do judge because we're human, but we shouldn't judge because we don't know the full story. So well, that's, yeah. when you were facing him, uh,
2: did he look at you? He looked at me and as I talked, I called him by name. I didn't just, as I presented my victim impact statement, I I didn't leave any stone unturned. I had crafted my my impact statement. I'd spent weeks crafting my victim impact statement. Some of the other family members just got up there and talked and spewed out their anger, and some could hardly voice what they were saying because they didn't know what they were feeling. They weren't in touch with their feelings, except they were so angry and so hurt. But I had spent a lot of time thinking about the impact of my brother's death and writing about it. And he looked at me, and I would call him by name. But then at the end of my telling about the pain and the anguish and the grief and the need for counseling and how he'd been ripped out of our, out of our family pictures and out of, our, out of our lives and how much we missed him, then I said, Travis, there's another impact that, is, that I want you to know about. And I can't remember the exact words. But I said, I've come to understand that God will never love what you've done, but he loves you in spite of what you've done. And because of that, I am offering you God's love and forgiveness and my own forgiveness. Forgiveness will never excuse or erase what has happened. But forgiveness and letting go can change how we go forward. And you know, he looked at me, and his eyes popped wide open. It was like he couldn't believe what he was hearing. He couldn't believe what he was hearing. The judge, when I, I got up to go back to my seat, and I was a changed woman. I was absolutely a free woman. The, the, the burden of all of this had been lifted from my shoulders. I walked with a new openness and freedom in my step. And, you know, as I, after I offered forgiveness... I suddenly had a sensation like soothing, warm oil pouring over me. Now there wasn't any oil pouring over me, but you know what? (laughs) Science, science is proving that when we forgive and let go, we are actually healed at the cellular level. And I believe I was being healed at the cellular level right there on that witness stand. And I came away a free woman Wow. Travis and-, and his brothers and his mother and his cousin went away to serve the rest of their lives in prison. But I came away a free woman. Is uh, Have you had a conversation
1: with Travis since?
2: About- no, there have been two or three letters. Um, I think, and the story isn't over. The story isn't over. I've had, I've had, um, The third brother, the youngest one, Philip, because he was just a teenager at the time, and he too was sentenced to life in prison without chance for parole, just in 2018, he was going to be re-sentenced because of some new um, justice guidelines that had come forth. So he was being re-sentenced, and I was invited to go down and present another victim impact statement. And this was 2018. And Soren's death was in 1999. And so I went down, and sure enough, I presented another victim impact statement. I tailored it to him. Oh, and what what I failed to mention is I had presented a second victim impact statement at the sentencing of James, who was the cousin. He's the one that brought the gun to the crime scene. And at the end of my victim impact statement at James's sentencing hearing, um, again, I offered forgiveness. And he stood up and looked at me and called me by name and said, Mrs. Stanwick, I did not kill your brother, but I will never forget what you have said to me today. So fast forward then to 2018. That's just two years ago. And I presented a victim impact statement uh, at Philip's re-sentencing. After it was all over, and Philip got up afterwards and said, if there was anything I could do, I am so sorry for what happened to Mr. Cornforth. That's my brother's name. I'm so sorry for what happened to Mr. Cornforth. If there was anything... If there was anything at all that I could do to take it back, I would do it. I am so sorry. I mean, it just took my breath away. I like believe- that is a
1: sincere, apology oh. with sincere regret, it sounds like.
2: Absolutely. I just, you know, it was something that I'd been longing to hear since 1999. Anyway. When that sentencing was finished and we were getting up to walk out of the courtroom, somebody came up from behind me, tapped me on the shoulder and I turned around. It was a woman I'd never, I had not, didn't know. And she said, you don't know me, but she said, I'm the mother of James. He was the one that I had presented the second victim impact statement about. And she said, she said, you would have no way of knowing this. But my son never, ever forgot what you said to him. And she said he's been in several different prisons around the U.S. And in his life was absolutely changed. And she said he has become an inmate chaplain. And he has helped hundreds of men turn their lives around as a result of forgiveness and God's love.
1: We, we have these conversations. Uh, I, I have this almost with every one of my guests is in the very worst walkthrough of fire and experiences and just the depths of the worst that a human being can feel. There's always a gift that comes out of that. And that does not mean to take away from the experience. But I, I really need you to talk about the gift. I mean you have done so many things in that tell so let's lighten up a bit. We're gonna actually take a quick break because I want Okay,
2: to-
0: sure, That's sure. Really
1: cool. Uh, you are listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose and we will be right back.
0: Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? <laughs> I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network.
1: Thank you for listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. My guest today is Annette Stanwick with an unbelievably powerful story of forgiveness. So um, what we we're saying before the break is the gift that, that you are given or you create on your own or however it comes about, but what your gift is, is your ability to... Uh, speak about this uh, all over the world I believe but but I want to lighten it just for a moment please tell the story of your motorcycle at that university. Oh
2: (laughs) speaking oh yes oh yes oh yes yeah I've spoken to a vast array of audiences around Canada the U.S. and in Africa and I was invited to speak at a university in California And they wanted me to talk about forgiveness and uh, some other things that I've done in relation to forgiveness. And when they found out that I rode a motorcycle, uh, the person that invited me to speak said, you know, how would you like to do something in relation to a motorcycle? I said, oh, I'd love to. And so I I rented a motorcycle and pulled it into the side room in this big auditorium And so that no one saw the motorcycle as they came in. There were several thousand students in that auditorium. And as they were, when they were getting ready to introduce me, I quietly rolled the motorcycle to the big double doors and opened them. And then as soon as they introduced me, I started up the motorcycle and roared down the aisle of this university auditorium. And then I, you know, got down to the front turned the motorcycle off and ran up onto the stage and I said I've always wanted to do that you know it's I beautiful. had those students I had those thousands of students in the palm of my hand
1: no doubt I mean you have that ability whenever anyone meets you anyway but then add on that I just think it's the very coolest uh you know one of many many facets of you and that so um so now I want to move uh, forward again. Um, you have done some incredible work uh, with inmates, you and your husband, Clay, I believe. Um, yeah. Do You want to speak about that? Do you want
2: to do that part? I'd love to, but I want to back up just for a minute, because okay. I need to put it in context. Okay. After that night, when I heard God speaking to me, and I fell asleep in peace that my brother's murderer was deeply wounded. And that he was loved by God. The next morning at breakfast, I told my husband that story. And he said, I didn't hear anything. But I told him. And I said, I said, honey, I hope the day will come when I can tell my brother's murderer how much he's loved. And there are people in the prison setting who need to hear this as well. Never dreaming where those statements would lead me. And when you ask for it, it comes to you, doesn't it? It does. And you know, Helen, I never could have dreamed when my brother was murdered, I would feel a passion to help other people forgive and let go of their painful experiences. But I had this this passion to help people that are serving life sentences for murder to understand. And so my husband and I, We started doing prison visitation very simply and going in for an hour at a time. And then people in restorative justice started hearing me and hearing this story. And they say, you need to develop a seminar. And so together, my husband and I developed the IOU seminar, Inward, Outward, and Upward. And it's a two-day seminar where we go in and work with men and women serving life sentences for murder. And to date, we've worked with more than 250 uh, lifers, and we see miracles happening right before our eyes. And you know that 80 to 90 percent of these people that are serving these long sentences are deeply wounded. It doesn't give; it's not ju- doesn't justify what they've done. But we can, when we get them to tell their stories, and they they begin to trust us. And they will open up and tell stories that they've never told another living soul. And once they're able to open up and tell their stories without criticism or judgment, they begin to heal. It's, it's absolutely phenomenal. And over and over and over again, we hear them say, I don't ever, ever want to hurt another living soul again.
1: It's got to be a, I mean, we've all done things as human beings that we regret and we think about it and we play it over our minds and it doesn't make sense. But when you take it to a level of of that, which is, you know, um, to harm another human being, um, you know, I I don't even know how anyone could get their head around that regret and live with peace. So how how do you get them to uh, forgive themselves? I guess that's the key, isn't it?
2: well it is but first you know first we we work into it and clay and i are very open i tell my story and i hold nothing back i share my victim impact statement with them word for word and they're you know some of them are stunned they've never heard anything like quite like that before because it is a very well written victim impact statement in fact the judge the judge at Travis's sentencing said he'd never heard anything so profound. Right. Anyway, so we, they, because we become so, we're so vulnerable with them, but we also tell them there's nothing you can say to us that will shock us. And we're li- going to listen to your stories and your experiences and your attitudes with open hearts and open minds. And we will not judge or criticize you. We are here to help you on your own unique journey of healing. And you can just sense the tension being relaxed. There are no prison guards. There's no prison officials in the room with us. It's just us and them. And the freedom that, that comes there and the, the connection that we make with these men and women is quite phenomenal.
1: So once you, you do that, what what's next for them? If they're serving life sentences, do they turn that around and become mentors to
2: other prisoners or what? They do. They become mentors to other prisoners. They develop, and, and the con code, uh, inmates don't trust each other because they never know how information that they share or stories that they share will be used against them but they develop a a a, um, cohesive group that they realize they're not alone and that they can trust each other. And that's something we tell them. The things that you hear from each other in this room must never, ever be used against them to hurt them, to retaliate, you know, or to abuse. And, And what they realize that they have this strength now and then they go out and encourage others and they encourage other men and women to to attend the seminar when we present it and you know the it's quite amazing actually and we we limit our seminar to 16 men or women because you have to be able to facilitate and we it is a facilitated seminar that is not just us talking but we're very careful in the questions that we ask and the stories we share, the principles that we teach them. We get them brainstorming. I'll never forget one one session. Um, I was one of the questions that I we get them to address is, "What do you value in life?" And I was putting all these words down on the flip chart of what their values were, and the list went on and on. And I turned around. I remember actually having tears in my eyes, and I said, "I wish that the public could see this—that you guys value the same things that we value."
1: Well, we're all we're all human, and like you had said in the very beginning of the podcast, you had painted a picture of a monster. Yeah, and we all do it, and we all—I don't know if it's to make sense of some of the crimes that happen we just you know uh, i think that we forget that those are human beings in there and yes you're right absolutely right it does not take away from what what they have done but are they not allowed to be forgiven yes now i'm not talking about some you know you know this is where okay so this is where i come into the hard part is where we're talking about People like Paul Bernardo and the very worst um, that a human being can be. How does anyone wrap their head around that?
2: Or well, to, is you it? know, it's a. I've developed a process, and it's called the the Freedom Formula, that we walk people through. And you, you no, no, the first step is to number one face the issue. Face the issue, whether it's the issues of the past where people have been deeply wounded or the issue of what they've done. Face the issue and you have to put a name to it. You have to be willing to talk about it. Clay and I don't want the details of, of who they've killed or, you know, exact steps. That's not what it is. But face the issue that you did it and so many are in denial because The legal system is constantly trying to help them appeal. And so they stay in a state of denial for 10, 15 years, hoping that somehow they're going to get off. So facing the issues and coming to grips with the fact that you actually did it. The second uh, step is to feel, face the issue and feel, feel the pain. The pain, the regret, the remorse the sadness, the shame, the, you know, the 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 list can go on, but feel that pain. Mm-hmm. And you can't do it without naming the pain. But then the third step is to make positive choices. That number one, you don't want to stay in this the depths of despair. You don't know, you want to rise above. You want to you want to have a better life. You want to heal. And those, there's a lot of choices that these guys make. It's amazing the positive choices that they talk about. The third step is to let go of the hurt. Whether it's the hurt that they've experienced from others or whether it's the hurt that they have caused. What is that hurt? And then we give them exercises in how to let go of it. And the, and the last step is to feel the freedom. When we're letting go of the hurt, we get them to write down what they need to let go of. Mm, sure. And then we bring sure. we bring a we bring a, a shredder into the room because we can't burn anything. We can't release balloons and let them off in the air. Somebody might find these lists and say, Oh my goodness. So we bring a, a shredder into the room and it's hard for them when they walk to that shredder to put that piece of paper in there because they've lived with this story they've lived with their past they've lived with their own pain but when they put it in the shredder and they can't take it back let it go and i i we have a lot of visual aids that we use we have a lot of fun with it too you know Mm -hmm. it's not all serious stuff we have some i have some fun Fun visual aids that get them, you know, to laugh, and some of the stuff is silly, but boy, it works. And then the fifth step is feel the freedom, and they have to give themselves permission to feel the freedom. We help them to write an apology. To write an apology, sure, their victim, their victims are no longer alive, but they can still write that uh, an apology to that person or to the family members. Uh, of the victim or to their own family members.
1: And I I think, I think that's absolutely beautiful. I mean, those are, those are things that you do. You know, I do a lot of those similar type things when I'm coaching it's, it is, it's write it down, get it out, explore it, uh, come to peace, come to terms with it and then let it go. But I, I almost think there's a seventh step in here. How do they, how do they, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of, okay, the Manson family is an example. You know, they've been in jail for 30 years, and, and some of them, and they're, they're begging for, to be released because they're different people, which is likely true if they've done some of those steps that you and Clay walked through. But I think it's important, is there a seventh step is how to navigate the anger from the victims and the victims' families, because quite often you hear people, the victims will forgive, and because they've got they've got that part of it, they've figured it out. But how do they walk um, anywhere? And I don't mean out outside of the prison, but within, without being, um, how do they fight that judgment that must be coming at them?
2: Well, and it does come at them all the time that comes at them all the time. Because number one, they're locked in their cells at night, or at periods of lockdown, they're locked in a unit where they are, you know, in a group, they walk, they have these timelines that are just rigid, 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 and they're counted at breakfast, and they're counted at lunch, and they're counted at supper, and they're locked down at night to, you know, they can't come out of their cells at night. And and so they're constantly being faced with the fact that they are a criminal. But what we help them to understand is how much they are loved by God and that their attitude from now forward is so important, that that they are men that deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. Yes, they've done hideous, horrible things. And we say that, you know, we'll never diminish the harm that you've done. Never. But you can be different in your attitude, in the way you treat people, in the way you treat fellow prisoners, in the way you speak to the staff and the corrections officers. It will be in your, it's your choice in how you behave. And some of them have said that they just feel like different people. They come, when they see us come back into the institution, they they come they want to hold our hands they want to shake our hands and they'll say oh we're different people i'm a different person well wow. you know they're still they still have to go on and serve the rest of their sentence mm-hmm. you know this the iou seminar doesn't give them any permission to to get released you know earlier not at right. all
0: right. not at all
2: but it. But they become they become better, better human beings because they are now, they now understand that they have been on a journey of healing, and their journey of healing will go on. Uh, but that they are different because they've been able to face the issues, feel the pain. They've made positive choices. They've let go of the hurt, and now they feel free of. Of the, of the anger and the bitterness and the resentment and the hatred and the regret and the shame and the blame.
1: So Annette, I, I have a question for you. Yes. What would Soren say to you today, knowing the work that you've done?
2: Whew. I believe that we would collapse in each other's arms. And I believe he would say, Annette, I wouldn't want to have to go through it again. But because of the impact that my death has had on so many people around the world, it was worth it. Yeah. I've I, never had that question asked of me.
1: Well, Helen. you know why I, I asked it? Because I, I hear it a lot the very worst things that happened to human beings, the one thing they always come back with is that they wouldn't have changed what happened because of the good that came out of it. Yeah. Pretty powerful you know, stuff.
2: I wouldn't ever want this to have happened to my brother. No, of course. But, not. but I have learned so much. I've learned so much about myself. I've learned so much about others I've learned so much about God but but there have been so there's been so many positive things that have come from this that it has dignified the pain mm-hmm. It has dignified the pain
1: And I can tell you from knowing you personally as I do you are a, a beautiful human being um, and you know I remember when I first read your book I didn't know you then. Um, I just met at the Calgary Association of Professional Speakers. And I, I can put that book down. And I am always kind of in awe of how kind you always are to everybody and how, how quick you are to help people. You know, that is, that is your gift. And, um, yeah. Annette, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, wow i I have no way to wrap this up other than just wow and and keep on with your journey and i can't wait to to collaborate with you on some of our projects that are upcoming it's so exciting um you know just simply thank you
2: well thank you helen for the invitation uh your listeners i just i just hope that that you as Helen's listeners will understand that it is possible to forgive. We may not be able to choose what happens in life, but we always have a choice in how we respond. And if you can make a choice that you want to heal, that you don't want to hang on to these painful wretched, horrible experiences, and they may not be as, you know, they don't, ha- they, they don't have to be as bad as murder. The everyday ordinary stuff that happens, thats so easy for us to get stuck in. But we always, always, always have a choice in how we respond. And so I encourage your listeners, Helen, to forgive and let go so you can live free.
1: And that is a wrap. Thank you so much. Bye for now.
2: Thank you for listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. To learn more about Helen's journaling retreats, speaking engagements, and life coaching, or to sign up for her newsletter, please visit helenrose.ca.